From Motherwell Football Club, I'm Andy Ross, and this is The Longer Listen. Today I'm joined by Motherwell Chief Executive Alan Burrows for a look back in 2019, and we'll look ahead to everything that Motherwell has in store in 2020. We'll start with 2019, and it certainly was a busy year for the football club on and off the park. It's a very broad way to start, but how would you reflect on 2019 as a whole? Um, if we were doing this podcast this time last year and you'd have said to me that in the calendar year we would have amassed just short of 70 points, which would have been a club record, certainly in the modern day, um, we would have effectively repaid in its totality our debt to our two previous owners. Uh, I would have ripped your arm off, to be quite honest with you. Um, it was... Um, we're ambitious at the club and everybody's ambitious and we want to do the best we can do at all times but we're also realists as well so um, at the same time as, as much as we're, we'll celebrate how good the year have been we'll also not get too carried away with it as well but yeah, if I'm, if I'm going to look at it from a purely positive point of view it's been a, it's been an excellent one for us you know, we've, as I said, as well as on the park we've had successes off it we've developed further young players into the first team um, we've made further strides in terms of the personnel we've got at the club so yeah, if I'm being brief, uh, I would say I've enjoyed the year. It's been one of the most enjoyable I've had as the CEO, and not only just the CEO, I've been at the club since 2007, it's one of the most enjoyable I've had since 2007. Um, and more so because I'm starting to see at points the fruits of a lot of people's hard work and labour, and I think when you're running the club as a CEO, the most rewarding thing is seeing the output that a lot of hard work from a lot of talented people um, and th- they, those people getting the rewards and those people getting the, the plaudits for it. So from my point of view, I'm delighted with how it's going, but at the same time, um, I'm totally aware of the ability of football to kick you in the backside a little bit when you think you've achieved anything. So all we'll do, and I think maybe the Hamilton game at the tail end of the year maybe serve to just to, to give us that little... Um, a reality check if you like that you know if everybody thinks we're getting a bit carried away that we still need to work hard and everybody at the club both on and off the field needs to continue to give their best if we want to continue the, the trajectory that we're currently on um, and that's what we'll do so the players will go away to are away in Tenerife this week and we and I'm sure the manager will be using similar sorts of words to them about you know reinforcing all the hard work and how, how hard work and dedication and professionalism is the basis of any success and you know that's the message that will percolate all through the club. We'll go over the, the key points from 2019, or some of the key events, certainly. The year started in different circumstances to how we go into 2020. The team was struggling on the park. Yeah. The manager was under pressure. I'm sure everyone inside the, the walls of Fur Park was under pressure. The team would turn it around in the pitch, playing a very direct style of football, very good in the eye. The young players were flourishing. It was a a monumental turnaround in terms of results and performances. Yeah, and people ask me, and I've been asked in various interviews and questionnaires that I've had about what was the catalyst for the change and why did it change so much. What I would say is, from our point of view and from the board's point of view, yeah, I mean, listen, everybody looks at the results, everybody worries, everybody, everybody stresses out about it, but we also had a belief in Stephen and we had a belief in how he wanted to change. He had been quite adamant and fairly candid at board meetings about the direction of travel he wanted to go in in terms of the style in terms of the people um, who he wanted to bring in um, and any any action that in January his Stephen and he's been quoted as saying this in, in, in various press conferences and the like that he was desperate just to get to January because he felt he could restructure a little bit he, Jake Casey was a Alawan and doing fairly well. Um, he wanted to move to the kind of four three three shape that we're currently utilising, um, and and seen Hasty as the kind of inverted winger that could be perfect for that. Obviously, we brought in Bolly Aribe who was going to play on the other side as well. So I think he certainly had a an idea of how he wanted to go. I think as a board we backed him on that, and I think that's sometimes the key when you're a football club is it's it's difficult not to panic at times. It's difficult to keep your cool, um, particularly in the face of. Um, people getting anxious about the performances and you could feel that in the stands, you could see it on social media, people getting anxious about it. But I think you've got to recognise the quality in the building if you've got it. You've got to see through some of the short-term results and issues. You've got to see what mitigating circumstances there were with injuries and the like. And also what plan they have going forward. I think we've we seen all that in Stephen um, 
and hopefully he has, in fact, there's no hopefully about it, certainly in the year that he has proceeded, has paid that faith, if you want to call it that, or, or people would like to call it that, uh, back in, in, in bucket loads in terms of the performances on the pitch. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I think his plan gave everybody a little bit of comfort when a lot of people were maybe getting a little bit anxious about it. And yeah, I, I think that's to his immense credit. And you know, I, I'll never be done probably through this podcast and others talking about how how good a job I think Stephen's done. But uh, I think he deserves immense credit for keeping his cool and and reshaping the team and giving everybody um, a really exciting product to watch, which thankfully seems to have so far anyway carried it this season. And that provides a platform as well, doesn't it? You've got a team that are performing well, they're exciting to watch, there's a lot of prospects within that team. To sell the following season, the nineteen twenty season, you've got that core of players there that are, are excelling and people want to come along and watch. Uh, absolutely. I think first and foremost, football has to be seen as a kind of entertainment industry. I, I know that remember the old famous quote from Bobby Williamson that he said when he was a command manager, he says, if you want entertainment, go to the cinema. Which I, <laughs> which I, I, I like it because it's funny and it's humorous. But actually, I, I've had, you know something, I've had so many people, uh, and, I, and I'm being genuine when I say this, have stopped me either coming out of the stadium or, or when they see me come into the club during the week, telling me how much they've enjoyed, particularly the back end of last season when you had Campbell and Hasty and Turnbull and, you know, Barry Maguire trying to push in a team, James Scott, Scott more latterly at that, towards the end of that season pushing in and just really being excited about coming to Fur Park and watching good, talented, young footballers um, making their way in the game because almost that's, what I think, what people want Mullow to be. They want to have a club and a team which gives an identity to them and their community and their area. And I think with a lot of these young guys, which has translated into this season as well because they've continued on their form, um, I think that they, we gave them that and, and I think people generally enjoyed it. And particularly as the pre the, the year of 2018 had been, you know, the, the, certainly the, the, the first half was... Uh, fairly reasonable. I uh, just missed out on obviously the, the top six, but the, the second, the, the the start to last season was was disappointing from everybody's point of view. Um, so yeah, we almost gave it a bit of a new lease of life, and and you're right, it has carried in. And okay, we did lose Hasty. Uh, David Turnbull's been injured, but you know, obviously James Scott's continued on his form. Alan Campbell, you know, continues to be a stalwart in the middle of the park. We've seen the emergence this year of Barry Maguire. You've seen other ones coming at the team. Young Ross McIver, albeit not come through. Our academy um, has has made a, an impact in the first team already, and you know Dean Cornelius, Jamie Semple, David Devine, Yusuf Hussain, you know there's a whole bunch of others who are just ready, I think, and desperate to come through. Maybe need a wee bit of game experience before they come in and do that, but you know just ready to pipe in. So from our point of view and from a club's point of view, um, we talk about success on the park, but just as important to that to this club and to the model, is to have guys like Turnbull and Campbell and Hasty and Maguire and Scott. And and all the other ones that I mentioned coming through because of this club and the model that we have through fan ownership has to survive and thrive that those players constantly have to come through and there has to be a pathway for them and you know I've I've been on record before as have the club and numerous times about the amount of academy minutes that we got last year it was over 8,000 for under 21 academy players you know which was the highest in the UK so from our point of view that's that's another I hate to use the term performance indicator. It sounds really corporate, um, but from from in terms of what we're asking our manager to do, in terms of asking what the football department to do in the academy to produce players who are good enough and have a pathway for them to do it, um, you know that really that's just satisfying almost as the points tally and the and the other successes we've had is actually the the, the model we've got in a sense is working uh, and and that's really encouraging. What not only for what we've seen in the first half of this season, but also seasons going ahead. And inevitably, when these young players are coming in and, and doing as well as they were, attention comes from elsewhere. First of all, I'd like to talk about Jake Hasty, who moved on to Rangers. There was a bit of discontent from the supporter base, certainly. I think that always comes with a, a player moving yeah. to an old firm side. He was immense when he came back into the team. I was actually watching some of David Turnbull's goals in the latter half of last season. And you remembered how electric Hasty was. He was yeah. so direct, so exciting. It was inevitable, I guess, that attention came from elsewhere. Yeah, and I, I actually, I don't think I've we've said this publicly. I, I phoned a couple of supporters who had been quite critical of me or the board or the club about handing on Hasty because I wanted to give them the full picture, really, and let them understand just the whole process we worked it through. And it wasn't me trying to. Um, you know, manipulate people's opinions. I think I wanted to give people what I thought was the full picture. And I have to say the three or four guys that I phoned once I sat and gave them the half an hour talking about the kind of 
A to Z, every one of them were completely understanding of the club's position. You know, the kind of slimline version of that was that, you know, Jake was at Alloway, he was doing okay. Um, we were going to bring him back to play him. Um, I think it would be fair to say that no one would really expected him. I think everybody expected him to have an impact and everybody expected him to do well because we've seen Jake for three, four years in the in the youth teams and Airdrie on loan and Alloway on loan. We knew what he was capable of. But I think he scored six and seven when he came back in and, and almost all of them were bellers, you know. Um, so that really... Um, that really... Uh, was uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It wasn't a surprise, but it, it, it probably exceeded what we expected when we brought him up from Alaba. The, the, the issue that that gives you, is, or us as a club, is that oh, with a guy who's got six months left in his deal, I mean, our, our plan was to bring him back from Alaba, see how he did. If he kicks one well and does the first team, give him another contract and, and go forward. Because, listen, the, the, the nature, I've had, I've had people at the time saying, well, why don't the club just give them contracts? The nature of how we run this business is it has to be managed quite tightly. We can't afford to have lots of players who are on contracts or not contributing. So you try your best to, you know, um, roll with the punches when it comes to young players. And sometimes, I think we've got most of them right. You know, think of Turnbull's contract being renewed, James Scott's contract, Alan Campbell's, Everett, Barry, Maguire, loads of young players have, have tied up for the future. Sometimes when you play that race, sometimes you get a bit of a jab in the face at times. And, and we hasty, we, we did. Um, this isn't a criticism of him or his agent because they're absolutely doing what right for them. But the minute he came in and started playing like that, all the power then transfers to the player because the players come in and doing exceptionally well um, and then can see the club. But I mean, the, the, we offered, we must have offered Jake by the end of it nine or ten different contracts. You know, all of them improving, 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 improving because we, we, we were seeing his impact every every week. We could see the, the type of player that we thought he could become. The problem that we have is that our ninth or tenth contract is still pales into insignificance when it comes to, for example, one of the old firm who, you know, will pay someone like Jake who hasn't probably featured as much as Jake with a wanted. In fact, he's now on loan um, way higher than even our top earner is. So, you know, from that, from that point of view, it's always a difficult conundrum for young footballers and listen I do neither myself Stephen Robinson the board blame Jake Hasty or blame his agent for the decision he took you know every football is a short career for footballers and it's I think sometimes we can all be disingenuous to a certain extent when it comes to asking players to think of the bigger picture or think of more long term when it's not their money they've been asked to forgo or the, the, the offer that they might get might be life changing so you know we put no blame or, or have any issue with Jake doing what he did that's football um, we've taken players ourselves from England and elsewhere on more money than they're getting there and those people came up for economic reasons as well so you know it's just the law of the jungle when it comes to it but you know I think um, we, we wanted to we, we'd done our best to try and keep Jake we it became quite clear quite quickly that he was had his had good offers from elsewhere but we didn't just have Rangers he also had offers from elsewhere in the world uh, not just England so I mean he was he was well versed and listen when players come in and have that sort of impact that's always going to happen um, but yeah listen we can we, we'll look at Jake Casey, um with a sense of frustration that we didn't get to a certain extent the years that we wanted at him in terms of the first team but also a sense of pride of the type of player that this club has developed and and, and who knows you know Jake Casey's a, a, a football's a funny old game so let's see where Jake Casey goes in the years uh, months and years ahead and uh you know, we we wish him all the best, and hopefully, from a from a career point of view, he goes on to have a good career because he's another one of our success stories. Can you understand the frustration given that he arrives at Ibrooks and then within six weeks he's out in loan? The fans maybe obviously keen to see him develop here, where he would have been pretty much guaranteed regular game time. Yeah, and and by that those were the those were the types of buzzwords and the lines that we were giving the agent and giving the player, trying to convince them that actual. You know, first team football and you know the ability to develop your career is, is all important at this stage of his career. But I go back to what I said, Andy. You know that you know the, the offer that, that that players are made in football sometimes just almost cancel out all that. You know, it becomes almost irresponsible at times to yourself and your family not to take that level of um, salary. And 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 that's fine. And I'm not necessarily saying just it's not necessarily just a money decision for Jake. You know, all football, every footballer I've ever met will always back themselves to go in and do it and go in and play and go in and I'll, I'll get my way into that team. Um, the, the issue for Jake, I suppose, going there now is that the absolute quality of squad that they've got, I, I think, actually, I was reading this morning, actually, that the, the Rangers sporting director was saying that one of their things they're going to have to do is trim the squad. And that, that's, the squad's enormous and it's full of international players. 
So for any young player to get in that team, it's a, it's a, it's a really hard slog at the first of it. They'll all back themselves, and, and so they should as well. He should back himself to go and play. Um, the fact of the matter is he's shown once again he wants to play football. He's out on loan at the minute. He'll do well. But yeah, I can totally... Listen, there was nobody more frustrated than me. Nobody more frustrated than Stephen Robinson because he's a good player at this level, you know, and we thought he could develop him into an even better player and, and sell him ultimately for the more money that we got. At the time, which, listen, I'm, I'm happy to say publicly was absolutely in line with, you know, what the trading compensation recommendations are from, from FIFA, uh, from Rangers, and, 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 and managed to also secure, uh, you know, a potential future economic rights to them as well in terms of sell-ons. So, you know, Rangers actually were, were, were very um, good to deal with. They were very pleasant to deal with and professional to deal with. Um, it was done fairly quickly. Um, so, you know... Aside from the disappointment of losing them, we still wish him the best. And but absolutely concede that you know had Jake Casey been here, there's every likelihood, Barn remaining injury or staying injury free, that he'd been playing a big part in our first team at the minute. But you know that's football. One transfer that went the opposite way was the David Turnbull one. David remaining at the club, there was numerous twists and turns in that one. Potentially a, a record fee in terms of money received for a player was on the table, the medical didn't go to plan, the, the media spotlight was intense, it was on you, it was much more tenfold than David. That was a very difficult time, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, although I, I would clarify the word difficult in a sense because I've been through really difficult times at this football club. You know, I've sat preparing for a playoff game and there was huge scrutiny in the, in the, in the team, the club, there was people's jobs in the lines, that's proper difficult. Um negotiating what would have been almost double the club's record transfer fee is, is is choppy but it's not it's you know I would rather be doing that than than the week leading up to the Rangers playoff game. Um yeah, I mean it was an interesting time for me personally because it had been the first real time that you'd been negotiating at that sort of level of money, you know, and to be fair to the club and the board, and again we're we on record as saying this, the chairman said this at the AGM that we must have knocked back for David probably four or five offers, um, many of them over our club record fee. And when you're a director of a business who every year um, we do our best to manage this club financially um, to knocking back offers in excess of two million quid um, isn't it easy. It gives you a lot of... Um, food for thought, you go home and you have some sleepless nights about, you know, is this the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? Are you... Because it's, it's a little bit of a game of poker to, to a certain extent. You've got a value for a player and you want to be your bullshit about it and you think this is what he's worth and we're not going to sell it for more. Um, so you're trying to... On one hand, you're, you're managing that situation with, with Celtic and other bidders. You've got the player himself who, you know and I should say this absolutely categorically, wasn't pushing for a move, wasn't never once chat my door or his agent never once chat my door and said, hey, come on, you know, that's a good offer. And, and listen, I've had that from players. Players who are extremely revered by Motherwell fans were chapping my door when they got offers that were ridiculous that we refused. Um, and, you know, and I had to manage that situation. But David, to his credit, and his agent, to his credit, never once came to me or were putting any pressure on the club to do it because I think they understood that you know, given how well he'd done, um, the, 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 an offer would come, and I think he probably backed himself and his agent backed him to, for the club to see that through. When the offer finally got to what we accepted, which would have been, and and I, listen, I used this this word online transformational, right? And I got a bit of criticism for it at the time by some people, on online. In fact, I actually got a bit of criticism from Celtic supporters for actually trying to explain it online. But I think there's a bit of a discord there between their fans' understanding of what Celtic is as a PLC, 100 million turnover, and a kind of fan run club like ours who have a responsibility when you're selling your main asset and your star man to quote unquote rival. Um, that you have to almost explain the club's rationale and thinking behind it. And I think it still comes as a surprise to people that senior executives in football actually want to engage on social media and explain those decisions. But somebody somebody said to me uh, online that, you know, um, or questioned my use of the word tran transformational. And what I meant for that was that, and, and we'll probably want to talk about this no doubt later, perhaps, that if this club wants to move to the next level, it really, really needs to start thinking about how do we improve our training facility, how do we improve our academy facility, because other clubs are. And if you don't improve yours, there's a real danger that you can get left behind. And the, the always the issue that this club has always had in order in order to do that is finance. It's always been finance. It's always been cash. Um, so from our point of view, that's where 
when we were discussing offers, and listen, of course you do this, of what you would do with the money, how would you invest the money, um, you can improve the playing squad, but more so it's about improving the infrastructure of the club, and that's what was really almost exciting for us. It was the only thing that was giving us any um, perk up from losing what has arguably probably been our best player in a couple of decades. Um, was the ability for this club to really properly invest it, and that and that may have also been the kind of prelude to a, a potential stadium debate. It was, certainly would have been a, a, a debate around the training ground, um, and also further improvements to the squad and try to re um, focus our attention on other youth players and other academy players. So that's what I meant by transformational. It really, I think, could have helped the club move on. What I should say is that because he hasn't moved on, doesn't necessarily mean that all those things that we were hoping for are necessarily out the window or gone it just means you have to refocus how you try and achieve them um, and the time skills that you can try and achieve them in so yeah that was the whole that was the whole issue with David but I, I mean it was an unusual in terms of how it all played out I felt at the time that the club had acted in a way which was in essence to say to Celtic this is the value this is what we've got um, Celtic eventually uh, came to that. I think a lot of the criticism that we received publicly, certainly from Celtic supporters, was about us actually putting out a statement that said that we had accepted the bid, uh, and people felt that that was an unusual step. To give an idea of why that happened, Peter Lowell and I had been discussing, and again, I've been on record of saying this at the AGM, so I'm not necessarily um, divulging anything that isn't out there publicly. But Peter Lowell and I, and I've actually said on Twitter to Celtic fans as well, um, Peter Lowell and I ha- had had numerous discussions all throughout that time about David and after we'd accepted the bid and it became quite clear very quickly around the mid-afternoon that the newspapers had the story that we'd accepted the bid and that happens in football and we had discussed with Celtic the best way in which to handle this and it was suggested to us by Celtic that we should confirm that the, the deal had been accepted and that we were happy with the deal and the deal was a good deal for the football club and so we agreed to that in that sense. So we agreed to, to put out and say that was fine and we were happy to do it. But also I was conscious of the fact that we were going to have to do a little bit of a sales job with our own supporters, um, even despite the fact that it was you know a, a, an offer that was almost double the record transfer fee. It still wasn't going to be an easy sell and we were, I was conscious of the fact it wasn't going to be, and as were the board. So we, we, we knew that actually it's better for our fans to hear it from us on our terms rather than reading it in the Daily Record or reading it in the Scottish Sun. So that's the reason why we decided to go with that. Celtic were completely on board with that. Celtic completely supported that action. And and as far as we were concerned, and as far as Celtic were concerned, the negotiations between the club were entirely professional, entirely um, upfront and honest with each other, and were conducted in, in the best possible faith. So, you know, I, I think from outside looking in, certainly from Celtic supporters, I think they, they've seen some sort of ulterior motive to us doing that. Um, but in actual fact, it was it not only was it in agreement with both clubs, but I think everybody was ex- extremely comfortable with that situation. Nobody could have probably predicted what was going to happen afterwards, which was obviously initially um, a bit of a to and fro, I think, in terms of the negotiations with Celtic and the player, um, which Celtic then um, made that public, uh, which again is their call. We also then had the secondary bid from Norwich, uh, which kind of muddied the water slightly as well. Um, so yeah, and then all of a sudden, and then at the end of obviously, for David's point of view, um, the deal not happening because of the, a really freak situation that nobody could have ever predicted. Uh, so yeah, it, it was from our point of view. I think it was painted publicly probably a lot differently to what it actually wasn't. Listen, that's not uncommon in football. That happens quite often, where people have a perception of what's going on, and it's actually normally entirely different. But more so, who I felt most for in the whole situation was David. Um, not because, you know, this is a big dream move and, you know, you got all this stuff in the media about, you know, boyhood heroes and all that nonsense and I think Mullow fans don't need me to elaborate any further on that. Uh, the fact of the matter was, though, that David had, you know, went through a really tough couple of weeks, both personally and professionally, with all that was going on. And then to have that whipped away from you so unexpectedly and then having the mental capacity to then deal with it is a huge thing. But and, and, and I think sometimes people forget there's a human being involved in it. There's a guy who's a young boy from Wishaw making his way, he comes from a great family, club of a good relationship with the family, you know, um, and you, as much as you were, you know, desperately sad to be losing somebody like David, you're also happy for what it's going to do for his life and his family's life and everything that goes on and all the sideshow that goes on with that. Um, and for all that to be taken away was something so mentally tough from him, what I will say to you 
is I think the way he's handled it, the way he's uh, handled himself and conducted himself at the club has been nothing short of miraculous for a 19-year-old boy. Um, showing a lot of maturity beyond his years, just got his head down and dealing with it. And I think that gives me the utmost confidence that he will come back the player he was because he's so focused on getting back. And in fact, the hardest part for the club is really putting the reins on him, really, to make sure that he doesn't go over-excessive and doesn't break down. And you know, and there's and and his progress is going as well as we 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 kind of hoped it would have done at this time. And I would say, and I'm going to take the opportunity to do this, that he was in fantastic hands with David Henderson, our physio. You know, who, extremely experienced. You know, been a physio for almost as long as I've been born. You know, worked at the highest level of the game. You know, rehabbed. You know, superstar players, millionaires back to to good health and good form and good fitness. So you know, and and, and to be fair, Tim Williamson at Celtic has said, has said that. To, to me and said it to the Celtic management then David Henderson there is very few better in the game to rehab him back uh, and he's on course and I'm really excited to see the current team we've got adding David Turnbull into the mix and hopefully fans get to see that in the not too dim and distant future The final outgoing I would like to talk about is Chris Cadden who again I mentioned the word saga with David Turnbull it was very much the same with, with Chris Cadden That was a saga Though no, no, that was it was slightly different I think many of us expected to see Chris move on at the end of his contract. The circumstances, quite a lot of fans felt duped, I suppose, that a player that had come through the ranks and we were due compensation for, it, it didn't quite work out like that. No, it, it didn't. And, you know, I've got to be careful what I say here, but I, the Chris's one is probably the biggest frustration of them all in a sense that, you know, we under we operate under the auspices of FIFA. FIFA have very, very clear instructions about what they believe clubs should receive if players come to the end of the contract, they're under 23 and the club have offered them a contract uh, within the a, a time this period for greater or more than the previous salary, all of which the club did. In fact, they'd offered Chris way in advance of the 60 days that were required to do. Uh, and we'd done that firstly and foremost because we wanted to keep Chris. You know, we'd felt he'd had a bad time with injury, that he was just getting back to, you know, um, the levels that he'd been at when he was at the top of his game. And I actually think subsequently he went on to show with Oxford that that has been the case. And we that's what we hoped he could have provided for us. So the first the first element of, of the contract offered to him was absolutely with the view of keeping him. And, you know, everybody used to joke in here that uh, Chris Cadden was Stephen Robinson's blue-eyed boy. The manager loves him uh, and loved him and as a player because of not only his ability on the park, but also his attitude off it and, you know, how, how good a pro he was and how good a lad he was uh, and is, sorry, I should say. And so, yeah, for the way it to happen and what happened there has, has been a little bit disappointing from our point of view. Um, that said... I think I, I really want to say this, that I don't put any blame at the feet of Chris or the hands or whatever you want to call him at Chris. You know, I think Chris takes a decision in his career and has every right to do that. I think he uh, came through the ranks at Motherwell. He's a local boy. Um, he still goes on very well with the people here at the club. So I, I don't blame Chris Cannon for it. And I don't think Chris has seen this sort of opportunity to somehow wriggle out of the opportunity uh, to get himself this move or that move or any other move. So I want to say that publicly. However, there, there, it is absolutely the case that the club have, over the last five or six months, tried to negotiate with a number of people, um, mainly the MLS, about what we believe to be a fair compensation package for Chris. The... the, the what makes it slightly complicated, and, and I'm sure that people are aware of this, that MLS, something for 20-odd years, hadn't recognised, if that's the right terminology, training compensation or solidarity. Um, in April of this year, they decided they were going to do that. Um, so, you know, not only do we think we, had a, a, we have a, a very strong case, but actually the MLS themselves have said publicly that that's what they were doing. I think there was a statement in April, the middle of April of this year, that they were going to formally adopt that as of immediately. So from that point of view, we have been trying to come through to a negotiation. I think it's now safe to say that we're probably at an impasse of those negotiations now. And the likelihood is that that will be decided now by FIFA. Uh, and it will be them who will have to decide on the, the nature of the case, which is really unfortunate and what we really were keen to avoid. Uh, what I would say 
uh, in fairness, is that the negotiations with MLS have been extremely professional, extremely cordial. Uh, the people I've spoke to there are absolutely um, good people. They believe their side, we believe our side, and we've just got to a situation where we can't agree anything that's suitable in the middle. Um, so yeah, the likelihood is that that's going to, and, and, and the frustration for us as a club is that the likelihood is that that won't ha that's not a thing that happens particularly quickly. It tends to drag on and drag on and drag on, and that's unfortunate because whilst we're watching Chris do well in England and maybe going back to America and who knows we sold on again, we are still sitting there trying to work out what was what happened in the summer of 2019 to a certain extent. So yeah, um... Hopefully it'll be sorted soon, but you know, it, 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 I, I would be lying if I said to you that it didn't leave a bitter taste in the mouth of not only me but people at the club. It, it, it really it was quite hard to take. Did the goalposts change somewhat in the last couple of weeks with Chris being subject to a bid from Oxford and Columbus subsequently turning that down? No, not 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 at all. Those two things aren't really linked in a sense. Um, this is in the basis that we believe that we developed Chris from age twelve onwards. Uh, under the FIFA statutes regulation of or registration regulation of players, I think I think that's the name of the actual document. Um, it's quite clearly explicitly says if a club develops a player from through twelve through twenty one, um, they're due a certain amount of money in training compensation if that player moves on at the end of his contract before his twenty third birthday, uh, and that's exactly what's happened here. Um, there, the so therefore we 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 think it's quite um, clear that the uh, our case is is, is strong. Um, I understand what the MLS's case is as well. They've they've been they've been put that to me, but that notwithstanding, I think that it will go to FIFA. But so there hasn't been a, there hasn't been anything that's really changed the debate here. It's just a fundamental one really between what the MLS believe what they think and we us believe in what we believe. Um, whether or not um, it changes over the next weeks and months ahead, it might well do. I can't predict that. I, I hope it does. I hope I hope we can come to. An agreement that takes it off the table and having to go to FIFA because that's not only expensive and time-consuming but stressful for everybody. Um, so I would rather, I would, I very much rather it be sorted out. But I also understand and respect their position, which is they they don't believe there's any training conversation due, and we believe there is. Hey, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? Yes, free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash MFC, pay the postage, and what's more, you'll get two extra free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. Beer52.com forward slash MFC. And with a number of departures, obviously brings players arriving at the club, yet another very busy summer for the manager, a number of new arrivals, and they've all embedded into the squad very well, they've adapted to life in Scottish football very well. Time and time again, Stephen Robinson and Martin Foyle are picking up players who come in as relative unknowns and they make their name at Middle Football Club. Yeah, and, and, and again, I, I, there isn't any um, compliment I can play both men and Ross Clarkson as well, I should say, because he's very much a part of that um, group, uh, as is Keith Lasley, um, who spend enormous amounts of time um, trying to, to scour not only... Scotland, but England and the the rest of Europe, um, for players and it's, it's such a hard, it's such a hard um task because everybody's chasing the same, almost the same players, um, selling um Scottish football and Motherwell. Uh, the manager said this to them. It's not often everybody's first pick, um, but what we've managed to do, I think, over the last couple of years, is really demonstrate this club as a real platform for players to then come in and accelerate and do and I think that's really helped us with a number of um, players I, I, there's been a couple quoted actually since joining the club that one of the reasons, uh, Declan Gallagher for one uh, one of the reasons he came here was he felt like he could be developed as a footballer and, and improve as a footballer and that's a real compliment I think to, to Stephen and his coaching staff uh, and it's one of the real tools in which we use to, to try and um, sell to players and sell the game and sell the club is that come in here, develop, improve as a footballer, um, play at a great stage, a great league in front of great supporters um, and then, you know, fulfil your next stage of the journey by getting your move on the, the uh, I was going to say a better club, but it's not a better club, maybe a bigger club and a more affluent club, but not a better club. Um, and I think a lot of people buy into that. And, and, and we've been seen as a club who will not only develop, but at the back end of it will sell if the price is right. And we've done that. So every time we do that, it helps us add another one to the list of players in which we can develop. So, yeah, I mean, listen, 
I've had, I've seen a lot of stuff written over the last week or so. Actually, funny enough, about managers south of the border and transfers, and it's quite interesting because managers, a lot of managers now have been judged on. Um, in fact, I said this on Twitter um, to about windows. That's that people now. That's the time frame that people now use. We'll give them the next window. Yet, don't actually allow managers to go and sign players, which I, I think is quite an interesting um, concept. Motherwell's different. I'm pleased to say, and it's firmly from my and the board's belief that the two things that you judge managers on, or three here at this club, are results, obviously, recruitment, and the third one for us, the slight one, is, is obviously youth development and player pathway. But the two main ones are, for most managers, are results and recruitment. And I always find it quite odd and quite strange that uh, we now seem to be obsessed that football clubs were taking one half of that out of managers' uh, remits a little bit and putting it in the hands of others, but judging the manager of effectively on results. And, and my belief strongly is that those two things are those two things are linked quite strongly. That to get good results, you need good players. And to get good players, you need the guy who's going to be picking them and coaching them and giving them instructions and setting up the team to be absolutely directly involved in the recruitment. And that's where I think Stephen really excels at a club at our place, that he's so... Um, involved with Martin and Ross and Keith in terms of driving that whole process and making sure they get the types of players so not, it's not only just what players can bring tactically and technically to the team but what is their personality and how do they add and how do they fit with the, the, the core of the group who are here and that all comes I think with having somebody there involved at the centre of that who properly understands all those dynamics. I mean, if you have somebody who sits separately to that, who's recruiting players, you're not involved, you're not as immersed as as Stephen would be in terms of actually trying to get those guys in the door. Um, so that's where I think it works. That's my, I, I'm a big believer in that, that I think you've got to put the onus of responsibility on the guy who's going to be managing, coaching, picking, setting up the team. He's got to be so heavily involved, and that's what Stephen has. And listen, in all recruitment, you don't get everyone right. In fact, I think good recruitment is if you've got more than 50% right, you're doing all right. Especially when you're talking about the types of numbers that we bring in and the budget levels that we have and the areas when we need to shop in. That Yeah, you're right, we do polish players. That's almost a word that I've seen used. We kind of polish rough diamonds, you like, and try and make them better. But for everyone that's going to get right, you're going to get some wrong, of course you are. But if you're getting more right than wrong, which I believe Stephen has in his time at the club um, and Martin as well, then I think you're doing an exceptionally good job. And uh, and and again, this summer with Declan Gallagher, Liam Paulworth, Chris Long, Jake Carroll, you know, there's uh, so many. I, I'd be I'd be wrong to, to I'll end up missing people out. But there've been so many really good ones this year that it's been a, a real good basis. To, as you mentioned earlier on, topped up with a good a good young players that we have at the club who are all developing nicely uh, along the way. And is that that provides some sort of a, a knock-on, really, in terms of the news towards the back end of the year. that The club are now operating debt-free. Debts to John Boyle and Les Hutchison both paid off. Now, contributing factors to that would be the cup finals in 2018 and 2017, obviously, but also the sale of Cedric Kipri, Louis Moult. And there's players on the books just now that could potentially be sold on further down the line. So how important is the, the recruitment linked to the, the running of the football club and the foundations of fan ownership? Fundamental. Uh, I mean, the, the reality is that if you want to remain competitive in this division, when, bear in mind, almost all of the clubs are either self-sufficient, when you talk about Celtic, or are topped up by owners or individuals who want to put money in. And by the way, I should say that doesn't. I'm not by saying that. I'm not saying they're doing it wrong. Yeah, if Roy McGregor or you know Dave King or anybody else who puts money into the game wants to put money in the game, great. You know, I'm fair play to you, brilliant, and and I think that should be applauded. We're fan owned. I think fan owned is right for Mullable at this stage. In terms of, I think it suits the community element that we've got. I think it replicates the people and the environment that we have here. I think it, I think fan ownership and Mullow fit quite nicely together in a sense. Um, but for that, to be fan owned and have to be almost entirely self reliant, other than the really good will of the supporters who put in a really good amount every year, um, you have to be effective at player trading. Uh, it's the it's the only way you can maintain a competitiveness in terms of your budgets with the division, whilst also trying to balance the books of the clubs. And that's always a conundrum that it doesn't always equal two plus two equals four in a sense but it's something that that is absolutely key to what we do is the development and and trading of players i know people get a lot bored about me talking about that but it's so so important to us um and we've done it really so well and and almost 
all of, not not completely, but almost all of the debt repayment to both Les and John came from directly from player sales. I mean, the other stuff like cup finals, the society money, all help us maintain that whole element of the club um, competing on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis, uh, as well as the goodwill of obviously the two former owners at the time to structure the repayment as they did. But it was actually the sale of players that actually allowed us to chip away at the loans and chip away at the loans at that period of time. Um, so, yeah, absolutely key uh, and the good news I think for multiple fans is as you've rightly pointed out I think they we haven't you know sold the family jewels in a sense to, to get rid of the debt that we or the majority of the debt that we had um, we have um, 80,000 of in, in, internal debt which we've talked about is owed to either friends of the club uh, or, or, or people within the club it's very soft um, all of which we've explained publicly but I mean to have paid back the amount that we've paid back over the time frame we paid it is remarkable, I think, to be quite honest, for a club of our size. And again, I pay testament to the, the amount of people who have done worked so hard to get that way from the society, but from internally at the club in terms of the, the player recruitment department and also the coaching department to get guys to that level in order to trade them off to pay to, to get the, the, the debt out has been has been fantastic. And as I said to you there, with the likes of Gallagher and Donnelly and Turnbull and Campbell and well, I'll, I'll miss others out. There's there, there's more, but you know, with with guys like that who other clubs want, like would would be interested in buying James Scott, Liam Polworth, uh, there's others. Um, you know, th- those types of players give us co- uh, uh, hope and confidence going forward that not only uh, it will this give the club an opportunity to survive, but also thrive. In terms of someone that's been at the club for as as long as you have, how much pride did you get from being the man at the helm when? The announcement was made that the club had repaid these debts because there must have been points during your tenure at the club that you thought this would never be possible. Um, no, I, I always believed it would be possible. And, I, and I, I've said this, I think again, I've said this publicly that on social media. I think if you lead the organisation and don't believe that what you're setting out to achieve is going to be achievable, you'll never achieve it. Um do you have doubts along the way? Absolutely. Um, I would be wrong if I was um, if I was saying to you, you know, I was going to have home every night and everything's Mr. Confident, everything will be great. That's you know me, I'm, that's not the type of person I am anyway, at the best of times. But I, did I believe that we could do it? Absolutely. I believe in the people at the club. I believe in what we're doing. I believe in, you know, the management team. I believe in all the staff that I've got at the club. Uh, and, you know, I believe in the board, the directors, that we, we, we could work through it and do it. I, I'm a proud that we managed to do it. Absolutely. Uh, the, the minute that the Welsh Society took ownership of the club and Les, um, sold his majority stake in the club my and my mind has been almost entirely focused on in order for the club to really start developing and kicking on forward we need to get rid of that debt and we need to pay it back and we need to um, achieve what we wanted to achieve um, am I surprised that it happened as quickly as it did if I'm being honest probably yeah um, I, I, I didn't imagine that we'd managed to pay back you know the thin end of two million pounds within a couple of years, given the type of club that we are, and the turnover that we have, and the challenges that we have. But again, that's just so much testament not only to the guys here, but I should also pay credit to the two former owners. You know, it's very easy at times to um, be a bit flippant when it comes to debt repayments, but actually for the for the two for John and for Les to structure the deal to allow the society to breathe. Um, and allow the club to effectively trade its way out it was, you know, it was a it was a big gift. And obviously, Les and John both wrote off, you know, a portion of their debt to the club. And again, that's something that's got to be acknowledged. And both men, you know, facilitated that whole transition to fan ownership, which we currently have. And uh, and I think, you know, at the end of it, you always reassess your targets and your goals. But I think it's also worth acknowledging the contribution. I mean, if you think of Les and John together, you're talking almost. 20 years of, of ownership of the club at, at some point obviously vast majority have been joined but you know I, I think that's a long time for, for any individuals to be involved and you know for me personally t- to them you know thank you for your contribution to the club at the time it was very much uh, appreciated um, both of them doing different things at different times that really helped the club out uh, from now on though that's what been debt free to external debt free um, what that really allows us to do now is focus on th- sort of things that we mentioned earlier when we talked about Turnbull, which is training ground and stadium and all those sorts of things that I think we really 
you can, it's very very difficult to do when you're sitting with a, a balance sheet that shows at one point almost two million pound worth of debt to them so i think from that point of view this now really i said it at the time is now really just the start of the next chapter it's the, really the end of the beginning and you ended the year 2019 on a, a very positive note as well with a bit of, of recognition personally the spfl ceo of the year uh you're a Pretty humble guy. That must have been a, a special moment again yeah. for yourself. I get, I get embarrassed when when you bring it up. I get, I get embarrassed because, you know, I'm going to go sound really football cliche here, but if I get an award like that, it's not necessarily an award about me. It's, a, it's an award of the entire team and the entire club and everybody does it. I'm the figurehead. I'm the guy that tries to direct the traffic a little bit, but it's the, the amount of staff that we have off the field who work so hard every single day you know, in the various departments that we have. Listen, we don't have a big team, but what I do have and what I'm really satisfied, one of the things I'm really, uh, and I don't often give myself praise or credit for anything because I'm from the west of Scotland and I'm male and that's not what we do, but I'm actually really satisfied with the team that I've managed to put together at the club in terms of the personnel. I'm really, really happy with the, the, the quality of staff that exists at the club now, and that goes for football and non-football. It's taken me probably five or so years to really get it to where I wanted to be, and listen, I can always, we can always make things better, and every walk of life can make things better. But it's the hard work of those individuals, that, ha- and, I, and I walk up there effectively as a figurehead to receive that, but that, that award is all about them. As I said, I, I direct traffic, I try and support, I try and lead, I try and make people feel as if they enjoy coming to their work, and hopefully the majority of the staff do. Um, you know, but really, an award like that, as much as it's nice for me and it's great for the CV and put on LinkedIn or whatever, what have you, um, it's more about the, the hard work of the staff, both football and non. And I'm, I'm, I was delighted, if not a little bit embarrassed, to go down to London and receive it on behalf of them. It's wonderful recognition for the football club as a whole, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, listen, I was sitting at a table, at a table with the Liverpool chief exec and the Bristol chief exec, and you know, I, 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 yeah, I did really feel out of place at that point. Um, but no, it's great for the club. It's it's, it's it is a, a, an enormous recognition, and I actually think you know something, Andy. I actually think a lot of people external to Mullow think certainly in the game. Mullow's a good club. It's good, good. I think hopefully people can see it as a well-run club. I think they hopefully see it as a fair club. I think they see it as a club who are quite forward-thinking, hopefully, um, quite fan-centric, hopefully, um, and that's what I wanted the club to be. And that's what I want the club to be is something that people can look at and say, you know, that's a good club. That's a decent club to be. Yeah, it's a good club to to, to you know involve in Scottish football, and, and and that's my hope. But not I want that not because I'm just the chief executive of Mullow, but also because I'm a massive fan. And I, anytime I think I want anybody to think of the club, I want them to think about it positively. Okay, listen, you get speed bumps along the way, things happen, and things don't go right from time to time, and fine. But I think hopefully a lot of people within the game think that you know, and I know because speaking to a lot of people externally at the SPFL and other clubs, I think people do look at what we do and think you know. For a club of that size, with the challenges that it's got, you know, club's doing all right, it's doing okay. But at the same time, and I always say this, and it's my always the caveat, it's always the asterisk I put at the end of it. The the minute anybody at this club, including me or anybody else, thinks that they've job done, pat in the back time, put the deck chair out, that's the time it'll all go wrong. That's the time it'll all go, um, you know, belly up on leaving the wall there. Uh, you know, that's the time. So I always believe, and I'll say, I said this to my staff, said it to the football department. The time to work hardest is when you're doing your best. Because at the time when you're doing your best, if you don't work hard, you quickly go stale, you quickly go stale. Because football is dead cyclable. You know, this it's really funny talking about how things change. One of the after we get beat off Ross County, one of the guys in the main stand when I was walking down to the boardroom was shouting about me wanting to stack Steve Robinson. And about five or six weeks ago, the same guy was shouting and saying, don't let him go to Hearts. <laughs> the same guy. Uh, and, and I just thought, it made me laugh. And I had a joke with him about it and it was fine. Um, but that just shows you how, how up and down football can be. And and from that point of view, nobody will rest on the laurels. I'll make sure nobody will rest on the laurels. I certainly won't. I'll continue to push it hard because A, I've got, you know, you know, I want to do well for myself, but also want the club to do as well as it possibly can do as well. So, you know, that's our focus now into 2020. Is yeah, 2019 has been a good year, running off the park. How do we make it better? How do we go to the next stage? How do we make ourselves better commercially? How do we make it improve the football department? How do we improve the academy? How do we improve the training facility? How do we improve communications and marketing? How do we improve all the things we tick in? All the things that we do. How do we make them better? And that's my focus every day: is how do we improve things? How do we make them better? And that's the that's my that's my mantra into this new year. Just my, my final one on 2019. The the start of the season has been excellent. 
you mentioned a, a kick up the arse, so to speak, with yep. the, the Hamilton Aki's game at the end of the year. You go into 2020 in good shape in the park. The manager has got a lot of praise in this podcast, but he's also got a lot of praise in other quarters. People yep. are looking at him. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the speculation with Hearts. You must be, first and foremost, delighted that he's remained at the football club. Absolutely. Um, I I was bracing myself for contact from somebody at that point. I have to say, personally, I was. I, I was. I thought, given the job he'd done, the fact that those two jobs in Edinburgh came up, I thought, listen, I would. I'm not going to. And I'd said to the chairman, I said to other members of the board, I I I would expect somebody to come in. The fact that they haven't is is absolutely fine. I'm not not paying any. Um, disrespect to Leanne or Anne, they've absolutely run their clubs well in the way they do them. Um, I, you know, just as a as a, a kind of independent observer, I, I was I was surprised that, that nobody came from that. Not, that notwithstanding, I'm delighted they didn't. Um, but at the same time, I'm also not naive enough to know that if he continues to perform in the way he performs, then course he's going to court interest from other places, and and that's just a testament to the job that he's doing. But that's just the same when it comes to players. It's the same when it comes to coaches. It seems to come to any member of staff that the nature of Motherwell is that we get good people all the time and we lose good people all the time because people have got more money than we've got and come in and offer them more money and, and more attractive um, packages. And people go, but I would rather, Andy, you know, I'd really rather surround myself at this club with really good people who might not be here for the rest of their lives but will give us one that here a really, really good turn and then the challenge is on me and other people at the club to then go and find the next person to do that and then do the next and the next. And in the intermean in time, we get really good people at the football club. And that's the way I've always tried to do it. I could accept mediocrity. I could, we could appoint people who know is good and hope that nobody wants to ever come in and do it. But I'd actually really appoint really the best people we can appoint at all times knowing that, listen, the minute this guy does well or the woman does well, somebody's going to come in from elsewhere and take them. But I, you know, I made peace with that a long time ago because that's just the nature of it. The key for us is, and it doesn't always work, but the key for us is how do you always try and make it better? How do you get the next person and how do you develop that forward? Uh, and that's what we're doing. If Stephen goes and he does well and, and he moves on at some point in his future career, then all we'll do as a club is restock and try and do the same thing again, which is appoint a good manager. Um, but listen, I don't want that to happen for any time soon. I hope he's here for as long as possible. But I'm also realistic to know, and I think our fans are realistic to know, I think I'm I'm talking down the, the microphone here to people who are educated enough to know where the club is. And where the club is, if the manager continues to be a success, he will be attractive to other people uh, at, at some point in the future. Um, but what they can and be assured of is that the club will be prepared if that happens, that we will look to try and appoint somebody uh, either in that role or any other role at the club we might lose people um, who are who are as equally talented and we can take the club forward. And as we move towards the, the close of this podcast 2020, the club look to be in a very good position at this moment in time. There's been talk about new stadium, new training facilities. Yep. I know that that's not going to suddenly pop up in March or April of this year but are, these are all things on the agenda, so to speak, and, and all been under consideration. Absolutely, and the key word you put, you, you've said it there, the key word is on the agenda. i done an interview with uh, Scott Mullen at BBC right after the Les and um, John Boyle announcement, and I deliberately put it on the agenda in that interview because I think now, when the first focus in fan ownership in the three years that it's been there has always been, let's clear the decks, let's make sure we get the debt repaid, let's get ourselves in a financial position where we can then start looking forward because it's very, very hard to look at the long-term picture, the bigger picture when your head's in the trench trying to clear out your feet. Uh, and that's what we've been doing to a certain extent has been trying to clear out the feet. Now that that has been cleared, now that we have an opportunity to go forward, it doesn't all of, all of a sudden mean that because Les and John are not here that everything's rosy in the garden and everything's easy now and everybody can get the cigars out. Far from it. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's hard. But what it should do now is act as the catalyst for this football club to be asking itself the more longer term, the more strategic questions about where this club's going to be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time. As, as I said, it's very hard to do that when you're in the midst of clearing debt and, and, and that's all your focus. The stadium, you know, I'll start with that first. Um, and by the way, I caveat by exactly what you're saying. This isn't something that you all of a sudden, because I say the stadium, that all of a sudden, I, I, I actually caused a bit of a Twitter explosion at the time, at the time I was, which was not what I was expecting. Um, 
this isn't this isn't all of a sudden next season we're going to be playing in some new stadium. It may ever be that it's put on agenda, but the agenda item is how to be improved for park. It might not that it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a done deal that you go elsewhere. You know, I think and I think that's that's a really important point to say. It, you know, that all that's all up for grabs. What it needs to do, what we need to get ourselves our heads around are that for park and places, for example, where we're recording this podcast, is 60, 70 years old. And and in 2020, that brings a whole bunch of challenges. And and those challenges are going to be even more felt in, I guess, 2025 or 2030. Those things are are, are are going to leave, not maybe not me or for the current board, but future boards. And I think that's what I'm trying to do is, how do you future-proof the club to a certain extent? Um, and I think that's what any responsible CEO or board would look at is, how do we try and you know, secure the long-term future of the club. But because this stadium has got its challenges currently, other challenges coming down the road, it has to be on our agenda about what the long-term future of either this stadium or a new venue. Uh, and that, that's me saying that by it's not 70-30 or 60-40. There's no, there's no one way or the other at the minute. It just needs to be on the agenda, and it will be on the agenda for this football club going forward. That that conversation now needs to take place, and we need to get to some more certainty around what that's going to look like and what that that may be. Um, I wouldn't prejudge that by saying I've got any favourite one way or the other. I have an understanding of how difficult this facility is. You know, I love Fir Park, uh, and I should say that I have I came here with my dad. Um, it was a difficult time for me and my family at the time, and football and this stadium and this environment was a glue that helped bond my family together and keep us all together to a certain extent. Thankfully, everyone worked out fine, but yeah, it was a difficult period. But you know, so the, the, it holds a lot of personal memories for me, and you know, people who are now sadly gone. I remember them through this building. Um, so yeah, that that has that that has that feeling there, and that has that attachment there. But I also understand as the chief exec and the person has to come in and work every day of some of the, the the bad sides of it, the difficult sides of it, the things that are really difficult to manage, and as people's expectations about what they get from their venue. Changes legislation of what a venue comes changes. I think we've got to. It can't be this sentimental situation all the time where we say, oh, "We love for parking. It's really warm. And it's really fuzzy." We need to adapt either this ground or somewhere else in the not too dim and distant future, or we are really seriously in danger of going static, staying still, regressing. And the exact same comes about when you talk about the training ground. So we have a, a training ground at Dale Park, good for training facility, you know, six grass pitches, two astro pitches and all that sort of stuff. But it's not ours. Um, we, we have a great partnership with the high school through DL Sports Management, DL Sports Trust, uh, and we've, we've been there for almost two decades. But from our point of view, we want to take it forward. We want to move that forward. And so this debate has to focus around for a training ground is, do we develop DL Park? Do we get more involved in that part of it? Or do we look for somewhere else? Very, very similar to the stadium. So all those questions now we need to start asking ourselves that because St Myrna getting training grounds, you know, the other club, Hibs have got training grounds, you know, Aberdeen have just built a new training ground. You know, all, all the clubs who we're competing with or expected to compete with in the league are getting these facilities, are getting new stadiums, are getting new training grounds. So therefore we have to act and we have to move forward with that. Because if we don't, as I've said, we'll we'll start to go back away. And that's not something I'm prepared to accept. So, you know, and then in the next couple of months, certainly we need to now really start opening up that debate on both those items. Um as I said, I wouldn't if I was a Muddle fan, I wouldn't be expecting it to be coming to anywhere other than for part for the for the foreseeable. Um training ground is probably of the two, the probably the most likely to be on the agenda closer than the other one. But the the two of them absolutely need to be on the agenda for this club to move forward, definitely. And just finally in the last couple of weeks, there have been people reflecting on the last decade. Now we don't have another couple of hours, so I'll I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and kind of rush through this one. But looking back in, in two thousand and ten, and now going into two thousand and twenty, do you still enjoy your role and and working for the football club that you love so dearly on a daily basis? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I do. Of course, I do. I love it. Uh, what 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 it does? What it is, Andy really is. See, see if you're a Mullow fan to be the head of the organisation it, it, it's not about enjoyment it's almost like a, it's an honour it's yeah, I, I, I hate chairman saying this I heard people say it before you are a custodian of the club you are you've got a responsibility for a person who's running it this is an institution this is something that's been here for 130 or 5 years you know generations to 4, 5, 6 generations before me becoming hopefully 6 or 7 generations in the future we're coming to watch this club, so uh, you feel a, a huge amount of responsibility running on a day to day basis because it is so important to this area. I love working for a club that has a conscience about itself. I love working for a club 
that cares about its community. I love working for a club that cares about its supporter base and wants to understand and reflect on its supporter base. Uh, so yeah, I, I I love working for Mother Football Club. It consumes me at times. I think I've said that to you before in previous podcasts. It probably overly consumes me at times, but it, 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 I love it. I, I it has its highs and lows as well. I can tell you, I was I came out of a dark room. I think about the fourth of February. I think uh, sorry, fourth of January after the Hamilton game. So I still get as emotional and emotive about results as fans do. Um, but that's just a part of it. That's just a part of 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 being a supporter. Um, but no, I love it. It has its challenges. Um, has its drawbacks, but I, I, I've used this quote to you before, and I'm going to use it to you again. The lows are horrendous. The lows are difficult. The lows are painful. The highs are unbelievable, and and the feeling you get when things are going well and, and things work out for you are, are incredible. So it has a range of emotions. I love it. I take pride in working here, and as I've said to you before, and I'll finalise with this: any Mother Football fan, any Mother Football Club supporter, Mother fan, listening to this knows that even if they don't like me or don't think I'm doing a good job or whatever they that's totally fine I don't mind that I hopefully think I'm doing a good job but what they will know and hopefully what they all do accept is I'll give 150% every time I step in the door always always give everything for the club uh, and the club will always be the first in any decision that's ever made it's never about me or any other individual MD best. it's always what's best for the club or what I think is best for the club uh, if I'm taking decisions so that's the promise that I made to everybody when I started this uh, and it's still the promise I made nearly six years on which is incredible thank you thank you 